Granlin tied up by Hayda. Hovindville and Granlin crisscross. Granlin with the puck. Granlin trying to fight off a check as he plays to the point. Instead, he works his way back free. Granlin fires score! So I have officially created a monster. Uh oh! It's my dog. Okay. He is officially in the dog category of 100% believing he is a human being. Okay. He <laughs> he gets an Easter basket that's three times bigger than any <laughs> basket I've ever gotten. As it's, a, it's got to be three or four times bigger than he is. Then. And he he. He opens it, and we can't bring bags into the house without him inspecting them. Yeah, under the notion that there, there might, might be, be a for bag, something in him for the bag. He he has his own spot at the table when we're preparing dinner that he just gets into the chair at the <laughs> table and sits there waiting for something. And he thinks he's the boss of everything and everywhere. He's really protective of the house, you know. So he'll bark at. at then we take him down to the river, and he thinks he's the protector of the river, and he can bark at everyone and everything at the river. Is he like that? I know uh, he he goes to your future mother-in-law's to play with the dogs there. Is he the boss dog he, there, the alpha dog? When he sleeps over there, he intimidates the dog, Brady, from getting onto the bed and sleeping on the bed. He snips at him, who, and that's his bed where Brady right, usually right. sleeps. But when Colston's there, Colston will bark at that dog, demand he – and I guess two times ago that he slept over, he got Brady so nervous that Brady threw up and slept out in the living room all night. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what to do, but uh, I guess that's a discussion for a different podcast. Sure. The dog podcast or something. So he had a good Easter though. He did. He got a giant basket. And he went to my grandma's house and got treats there and then went to Tammy's grandma's house and played with a few of his friends there. And then yesterday he got to go down to the river and have a hot dog at Mississippi Muds. I got to go there still. I've heard it's good. You've never been to Mississippi Muds? I haven't. They own another place too, right? Yeah, it's called... uh, It's like uh, the exact same menu. Yeah, it's it's right in the same street even. This is weird, yeah. You know, two doors down. Uh, they also have a uh, fresh seafood bar at that one, ah. which maybe sets it apart a little bit. Sure. But Mississippi Muds is a really interesting buffalo thing and in that it's a place that can grill a hot dog, charge $3 for it, literally, and nobody blinks an eye. Like, there's a <laughs> line out the door every day. Right. Also, you have to get there kind of early in the season. Otherwise, you risk being stung by a bee getting your pop. Okay. Because their pop machines get overrun by bees in the summer. But they do nothing about it. <laughs> but people still go And there. people still – I mean, it's a line out the door yeah. all day, every day. I got stung. Uh, the original Duff's, and I'm sure everyone listening has heard of Duff's because of – Right. It's famous you know, for Anchor Byron Buffs. R- Duff's, right. Right. Two places. Uh, the original Duff's is tiny. So if you actually go there for dinner and you have to wait, there's a very small area to wait, or you can wait outside like in picnic tables. And I, I got stung by a bee outside there once, and I wasn't sure if I was allergic because when I was little, my eyes would kind of swell shut, but I hadn't had – uh, I hadn't been stung in a long time. So Michelle ran to like a 
a pharmacy or whatever to get me some Benadryl just in case. But my thought at the time was I would take a bee sting every time I came to Duff's. Right. That was the price of admission for 33 Duff's. years in running without a bee sting for me. Yeah. And yeah, if I if they, someone said you can't enter Duff's again without being stung, yeah, you just I'd it. do it right. and see what happens. But welcome to the Sportscaster Season 4, Episode 12, April 22nd, 2014. Good show for you today. Lee Jenkins, as we promised last week, is going to join us to talk about the NBA playoffs, kind of say the things that we are just not smart enough when it comes to basketball to do. Yeah, he, he's great because I don't follow basketball in the least, and I'm sure we'll, that it's evident if you've listened to more than four seconds of any of these podcasts, but I'm always fascinated by his conversations. So Yeah, he's great, and the interview's great, and it's long, and we get into a lot of things, not just the playoffs, but some other basketball-related issues. And then we also have Ben Ryder on the show today to talk about baseball. Baseball's already played 20 games. Wow. And I know that doesn't seem like a ton when you think about them playing 160, but it for playing 160 games, that thing goes quick. It just happens quick, partly because summer goes by quick, and most of it's during summer. Right. But uh, 20 games in, so we're going to check in with Ben and see what's going on with baseball. Also, we have a book club update today, and we have uh, one last thing. So it's not a huge show. Last week we had Greg Wyshynski, who did NHL playoffs with us, then Damon Hack, who did Masters with us, and Sam Coda, who won the national championship with Union, was on the show as well. Next week... We have a big show, S.L. Price, who's only been on twice, but maybe two of the more memorable appearances ever on the show. He's one of the best writers who's ever been on the show. His columns have been featured in the Best American Sports Writing Series just about more than anyone. I think he's been in seven times, and there's maybe one other guy who's been in that much or as many times. Uh, He's a legend as a writer. And the last time he was on, his second appearance, we had... Maybe one of the best interviews ever on the show, mostly because we just got off into a really interesting conversation about Twitter just because he's not on it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it just – I don't know. It's one of these interviews that when it was done, it was like, wow, that was really good. And not only did I think that, but then we got a great response. Is he on Twitter yet? Still not. Well, he's fighting that fight. Yeah, and Chris Burke is also going to be on next week to uh, talk about the draft because yeah, he's kind of the uh, taken over SI as like their draft guy sort of. Which is good for us because we really didn't have a draft guy. We almost got a guy for everything. NFL draft, we don't really. No, we had the who was the NFL Network guy? Uh, I think he was CB Lock and Fora. Yeah, I mean, but he mock, wasn't, he's not really he a doesn't draft do mock guy. drafts. No, you know? he's kind of like the Schefter of right. Yeah, yeah. So, and we gotta have him on again. We haven't had him on in a while. No, I mean, I'm yeah. sure we will as football gets more. But anyway, we got a lot to do. So let's get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. All righty, I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so we have survived one of the bigger lulls in the sports calendar. That kind of stretch, maybe this year it was post-Olympics, yeah. post-March Madness, to the start of the playoffs in the NHL and the NBA. Both, the NBA hasn't, they've only started for two or three days. The NHL is pretty much a full weekend 
both are off to fantastic starts. I got to see the end of the uh, Oklahoma City and Memphis game last night, which was kind of crazy for a basketball game. But it took so long. It basically took the whole third period of St. Louis-Chicago last night to play the final minute and a five-minute overtime of that game. It's just so long. There's so many timeouts. It's like coaches in basketball will not trust their teams to do anything past the next 15 seconds of play in the game. Yeah, what would they do if it was like the NHL where they only got one timeout They the need to do game? that. They really need to cut back. It's out of control, especially it's bad in college basketball. In the NBA, they have full timeouts and 30-second timeouts or 20-second or whatever. It's just crazy. But it was very entertaining. And there's some interesting matchups. A really interesting thing. Uh, I see the GM of the Toronto Raptors got fined $25,000 for saying fuck Brooklyn to their quote-unquote party in the plaza <laughs> before game one of the Brooklyn-Toronto series. You know what? I bet you that just makes them all the more endearing. Like that That's kind of awesome, actually. Yeah, that's something the city and the fans love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure the owner will gladly pay that 25, 25 grand. grand for the pub that it got. Sure. But uh, we're going to talk more about the NBA playoffs with Lee Jenkins. And we recorded that on Sunday, just so everyone knows. But I don't think anything in it is dated. But we did record Well, no series Sunday. is more than two games deep. Right, so. yeah, nothing's dated. But it was Sunday. But uh, the first week of the NHL playoffs has been awesome. And it's been well-received. Great ratings. Uh, lots of buzz. Just a really great start. Great game. St. Louis and Chicago. It's been unbelievable. What have you watched so far and noticed and observed and enjoyed? Yeah, I, I've really... I mean, I know I, I get picked on for only liking... Uh, Hockey and football. In this segment, which was 30 seconds of basketball, <laughs> it'll probably be 10 minutes of hockey now. will be no exception. But but that's also because we have 30 minutes of Lee Jenkins in five minutes. Well, sure. So right. in defense of our yeah, pro-hockey yeah. leanings. Uh, yeah, I've really, uh, I'm shocked at how much I've been allowed to watch. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I have a two-year-old at home, so sometimes at night we need to wind her down. So you flip on, like... Uh, Doc McStuffins or some other kids' TV show, Peppa Frozen. Pig. Does she watch she, Frozen? She, we have watched Every Frozen. Every kid loves Frozen. Yeah, right we've now, watched I've it. Noticed. She does love singing and stuff, too. But, oh. yeah, but somehow I've gotten away with being able to absorb pretty much all the hockey I can since it started. It's been great. Uh I mean, you can go through every series. Boston, Detroit, that's tied at one. I don't expect Detroit to be able to hang on to that, though, as uh, – I think Detroit is exactly what I thought they were. They're going to be a tough out, but they're going to go out. Yeah, and Detroit. I mean, they're going to go out kicking and fighting and doing everything they can, but they're just not going to have enough. I think coaching a lot of times in hockey is overrated, and a lot of the coaches are recycled just because maybe they have a cup win. Uh, that I think the Detroit coach is an example where it's not. I mean, he Babcock. he gets yeah, Mike, he gets whatever he can out of those guys because that that they're not really evenly matched in that series. They're banged up. Boston's really not. Uh, and they've been in both games, so and it's series is tied at one, and going back to Detroit. Yeah, and that series is the first example of a play made on the dirty side that's right. become under the spotlight, and just the maddening inconsistency that the NHL handles these things. Yeah, I'm not going gonna... If you didn't see it, based he speared a guy between the nuts, and what do you get? Five grand. Five grand. They call it a spear, but basically he tried to. I mean, if you don't watch hockey, he took the stick between the legs and gave him the can opener or whatever you want to call it. But he, he tried to split at the guy in two and uh, looked like a game to me. 
watching it, it looks like something I'd give a game. Yeah, for sure. And it, Lucic just comes off sounding ridiculous in interviews. Uh, basically, to paraphrase him, he says something along the lines of, oh, man, this isn't like me. I've never done that before. And then goes on to say that he's done it twice, like in the past year or something stupid like that. Not suspended for either time. Uh, it just adds fuel to the everybody hates Boston except for Boston. So fire. basically we've had, what, four examples where player safety has needed to step in. So we had the Lucic play, which they gave they whiffed on a $5,000 fine. Yeah, and also this has nothing to do with player safety, but uh, what was the coach? The coach Quinville. of Quinville. Yes, grabbed his crotch. To, what he said was you don't have the balls. To the, make a call. They were something. on the power play already. And the horrible rule, which they need to take out, which is so prominent in the playoffs already, where the player throws the puck out of this, the arena from his own zone and it's not touched. It's automatically two minutes. That clearly happened. And, oh, right. But it was really cool. It would have given Chicago a five-on-three in overtime. Yep. But it was like one of those where maybe it was tipped. It but was maybe it really wasn't. close. It was really close. I would say it was tipped. Obviously, he would say it was tipped, and he basically said, "You don't have the balls to make the call." He got twenty-five grand for that. I twenty-five think. grand. So, I mean, this isn't anything original. I'm saying here, but you get twenty-five grand for grabbing your own balls. Only a five grand fine for jamming a stick in somebody else's. I mean, that's just how backwards the NHL is. Also, in that series, uh, David Backus got very rudely he got through the boards by Brent Seabrook, who, as a guy who's never been suspended before. Yep. A star player on his team. Sure. And they gave him three games. For taking out a star player on the other team. Which was very fair, I thought. I actually kind of thought that was the right decision for a couple reasons. One, it was called correctly on the ice, which wasn't the case in Lucic. No. In Chicago, Seabrook was given a five in a game. That five in the game led to the ensuing tying goal. And then St. Louis won the game in Seabrook's absence in overtime. Then they gave him three more games. On top of that, I just thought it was the I I thought it was the right appropriate suspension in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to get rid of these things altogether, you got to come down way harder than that. That's that's not really. I mean, that could be the season. Sure, but um, as far as the way they generally call it, I think that's pretty accurate. And to be fair, and again, like never uh, suspended before. Right, he was never suspended. Minutes a game, and it was a hockey play, it, not a good one. It was kind of, it was dirty. Backus did kind of slump a little bit down. Right, but he didn't have the puck, so it was late. It was to, late, yep. so you could call it a charge, I guess. Um, in the principal point of contact is the head, which is kind of what they always go to. That, that's the problem with the NHL. NHL is it's become like the Sabruder film, the way they have to analyze it and. Oh, he's got one skate on the ice, but he's kind of leaving the ice, so maybe he left his feet. It was a dirty hit. Three games is is pretty good. But, uh, I mean, I guess we're going to get to the Matt Cook one. Right, yeah, that would be the was next on the list, I suppose. Right. This one has to be heavily suspended, I think, because it's not really a hockey play. The guy had already gone by him. He got beat, and he just stuck his leg out. He wasn't trying to hit him in the chest. He just was trying to hit him knee-to-knee. Uh, Cook has a history of this. And, I mean, this is the type of thing that should be like a rest of the playoffs type suspension. They lost their best defenseman. I'm not going to argue or claim I'm overly familiar with. Barry, he's a really, really he's talented a good, offensive young defenseman. Guy, right. Yep. 
that now is gone for the remainder of the playoffs. Probably say Eric Johnson is their number one overall defenseman. Sure. And he's, he's their nice best too, yeah. and he's their best offensive defenseman. Okay. And he's out with an MCL injury. Right. Now, I mean I guess that said, what would have to come down what type what type of ruling would you hear and think, wow, they really missed the missed the boat on this one again? Less than ten games. Yeah, so he's got to be gone minimally the rest of this series and probably the next. I, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think – and now they have called an in-person for tomorrow. So maybe by the time you hear this, it's already right. announced. But recording on Tuesday, it's going to be five or more because that's what in-person. an in-person means. It, that gives the league the right to – Apparently he doesn't have to go to in-person. He can he make a phone no. call. I didn't know that, but um, – yeah, I mean, if you live in any hockey market, this is all the talking heads and the radio have been talking about lately, and rightfully so. This stuff is a problem. Uh, certain people seem to get star treatment. If if this was a hit on a star, like if Seabrook hit Crosby like that, I know people always point to that example, but that's he's going to get more than three games, I would think, especially if Crosby's out. Like Backus might be out now for the however long. Yeah, it's tough, I think, to respond to head injuries with based on the injury because you never know how long they're yeah, going to be. Yeah, I don't like be. that idea either. That You know what I mean? It's so tough because you don't know. He might not miss a shift, and he might miss a year. I just think they need to have something consistent. Uh, I mean, I've heard someone say they are consistent. They're consistently... Under, <laughs> well, they consistently undersuspend people. They're consistently kind of lenient on it. I mean, once or tw- the outlier cases are like Torres got 21 games, I think, during the playoffs a year or two ago, uh, which was crazy. But I mean, that's the type of stuff they need to do to, to discourage this stuff. A couple of uh, bigger picture observations for me from the first week, and you can respond to them. Clearly, Bishop is very, very valuable to Tampa Bay. And yeah. they were never going to compete in that series without him. And boy, did they kill on that trade. Conacher for Bishop. Yeah, I, I thought the total opposite. Uh, I mean, we know Corey, so there was some of that there, some bias there too. But Corey came into the league and he was on fire. I saw some uh, Garriock or somebody said he thought he might be the rookie of the year. And then that kind of slowed down. And then they traded him out of nowhere for Bishop. And it's like, boy, a, a goal scorer for a goalie when goalies seem to be kind of like the most replaceable position in hockey. But, but yeah, Bishop's that, been great. He's been great. And the guy, Lynn Black, who's been playing, hasn't been awful, but he hasn't done what he needed to do to, to get his team a win. Now, it, Montre- assuming Montreal wins this series. Yeah, it's 3 nothing as we record. Right, game four tonight. Only three teams have ever come back from that. Now, does Montreal have a chance against Boston? Is that one of them games that, because it's a rivalry, maybe they do? They do. Montreal has one of the most mature, battle-tested goalies in the playoffs in Carey Price. I've talked about my admiration for him before on the show for what where he plays and how young he started playing his position in yeah, the he's city. Good. He's very, very good, and he's playing very, very good. And they have guys like Briere who just kind of pop up all of a sudden for playoff time. Yeah, he's he's arguably, since he's been in the league, the most clutch playoff player in the league. And like, that's already, like Crosby inclusive. Like He is phenomenal. Already has a game-winning assist in overtime during yep. the series. They have guys like Vanek who obviously can score. And they still don't have – they're doing this without Galchenyuk, 
who oh, should right. be back. So you add him into the mix. Gallagher's good. Gianta's always on a breakaway somehow. <laughs> Subban is... I, I like their team. They can certainly compete. They're going to give Boston all that they can handle, and they're going to make Boston, especially if Columbus can beat Pittsburgh, they're going to make Boston really pissed off about this bracket bullshit. Anyone from Detroit right now is really pissed we keep talking this way. Right. In a 1-1 In a 1-1 series, absolutely. All right, we spent a lot of time on that. Let's kind of pop through some of these other series real quick. Um, Pittsburgh-Columbus. Pittsburgh's not as good as maybe they get credit for. I think Columbus is a pretty likable team, too. Uh, They work hard. They're mostly anonymous. I think they're very flawed, and they showed it last night where they – I wouldn't say dominated a game, but they had some control over a game and then just weren't talented enough to deal with Pittsburgh, who had a really good two minutes in that game. I think they need another Dubinsky. You know, Dubinsky. Did you see the last rush so of close. the game? So oh, close. Man. <laughs> they need one more guy like that to kind of help the younger guys, the Atkinson and Johansons of the team. They need maybe one more veteran guy who's good. Does this, does this team say anything about Rick Nash? That they've kind of gotten better after he left? Or is it just he was there at the wrong time? Yeah, I think he was maybe there at the wrong time. It's yeah. maybe another example. You know, players sometimes can pop. I mean, Johansson's a fourth overall pick, playing great there. Right. Uh, Jack Johnson's a guy that they've acquired through. The, he's a former third overall pick, playing great there. It's a fun team to watch. I don't know if they get another win in that series, but they, they've had their they chances. They had a 3-1 three to, to lead in game one, which they blew. And then they had a 3-1 to one game in game three that they right. blew. You know, they hold on to one or both of those. It's two to one them or three to nothing them. Yep. Uh, Crystal Tang, not good. No. Not good. Just especially. No, he's looking kind of like. Doesn't play on the top power play, okay. and he's terrible in his own zone. Yeah, he looks like a better version, maybe, of, uh, or a comparable version of. Who's the guy in Washington? Puts up a lot of points in the Green, regular Mike season. Green. Yeah, Mike Green. Yeah, but he's just not very good. So I'm not impressed with them, and Bilesman's terrible, and everyone knows it. Uh, he was terrible for USA. He's terrible for Pittsburgh last year, and he's terrible so far this year as well. Uh, what else is going on? The Kings are in trouble. They give up seven goals to San Jose. They're down to nothing. Although that's one I think where I said going into it, it's going to be tough for the road teams to get wins. Yeah, they've given up seven goals and six goals. And- yeah, that, that's alarming. I didn't expect that, but I expected them to have a tough time. I'm not shocked they're down two nothing. I'm shocked they're down two nothing after giving up thirteen goals. San Jose was my pick in the West to go to the cup, and I actually picked them to win the cup. I I'd almost like to see the closer series, though. You know what I mean? Like you want them to be a little bit. I mean, I guess from a health standpoint, if you can make it through this series and walk through it in four games and. You'd read, you'd take that in a heartbeat, but man, I thought this was gonna. I we we talked about this probably last week. The team that came out of this series might be the best team in the West, and they've got to face each other in the first round. And it's just it's been totally lopsided so far. Lindy Ruff is a great coach, and maybe there's some Buffalo bias there, but he's getting a lot out of that Dallas team, and they're battling for everything they have against a much better Anaheim team, and they've made that series interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I like like their third line there. I mean, but that's what you're seeing. They, uh, Sagan's got a score. He, he's looks pretty good, but uh, if he buries a few chances, it, I think those all been one goal games. Too. Yeah, just so. a, a much better, you know, much better series than I thought. Dallas is just battling there. St. Louis and talk about burying the lead. We talked a little bit about the Bacchus and Seabrook thing, but that's been the best series. Uh, the Blues two times. I think I saw they're the second team ever to. 
score in the last two minutes of the game in back-to-back games and win them both in overtime. Yeah, every one of those games has been essentially a one-goal game. The third game was uh, an empty netter. And Ryan Miller has had, I would say, a bad start in every game and then played really, really well. Yeah, he had a, three goals and seven shots in game one. And then, then was phenomenal. was phenomenal, including a breakaway stop on Hossa in one of the overtimes. Yep. And uh, game, th- he let in a terrible goal, unfortunately, that cost them because they couldn't three. get a goal in right. game three. But you know what's going to be the problem for the Blackhawks is Patrick Kane is not right. He's just not right. He doesn't have the jump in his step. He's been struggling with the knee brace. He's talked about it openly and uh, just not right. I guess if you are Ryan Miller and you're going to give up a garbage goal, it might as well be in a game where your team isn't going to score a goal. Like they, I don't think as a St. Louis fan you can blame Ryan Miller for game three. He gave up a- if he gives up one goal in every game, whether it's good or bad, they're right. going to probably win the series. Right. So, yeah, I don't think it's anything to get pa- panicked about. Anything else? We're spending a lot of time on this. We got yeah, yeah. Kind of stuff. Colorado's looked awesome, and then they didn't. I, I didn't think they could maintain that start. Uh, I still think they probably win that series. McKinnon, right? Holy hell. Whoa, yeah. Seven points in the first two games. McKinnon's the best example of... Get a top pick and yeah. change your Holy franchise cow. around. He is, he's phenomenal. And Patrick Waugh is pretty good at coaching. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought? He's doing a great job. Yeah. So. They look good. Yeah, I mean, that's, like you said, more than enough hockey. All right, our second thing today is we got some kind of mini NFL things. Don and I are just going to pass around a little bit. One that caught my eye today is the Jaguars announced the retirement of linebacker Russell Allen, who apparently had a stroke in the game that the Jaguars played against the Bills. He got hit, he says somewhat routinely, by Eric Wood, the Bills' center. Yeah. Went off. Uh, didn't get any concussion testing or anything like that. I don't think he was down, so I don't think anyone knew sure. to give. It's yeah, not, I don't think this is negligent. Not the league being right. negligent. I don't think anyone knew. Maybe he was being a little negligent. He went back in or didn't, but started to suffer some some double vision. Uh, the next day, got testing and it was found out it's a stroke and he, he can never play again. So a crazy kind of scary thing there, which uh, caught my eye. So. Yeah, Eric, Eric Wood tweeted about it. I mean, he found out probably when everybody else did, and he said, pretty sobering reading on ESPN bottom line that a collision I had with the linebacker for the Jags gave him a stroke and career over. So Eric Wood's a real real cool guy. I mean, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Great right? community guy. Yeah, he certainly wasn't trying to. No, no, he's not dirty, I guess. Yeah, that's right. the idea. And I don't think anyone's saying it was no, either. No, no, no. It's one of those just really, really strange football things that shows how dangerous football can be. Right. Uh, the Bills are kind of in the in the news for a few things other than their ownership situation. They're getting out of a lawsuit over texts and into a lawsuit. Ridiculous lawsuit. Regarding their cheerleaders. So, uh, interesting time for the Bills. Yeah, basically the text thing is that people could sign up to get texts from the team. And I guess in the fine print, they said they'd only send four. But they sent more than four. So it's like a class so action. So it became a class weird. action lawsuit, and the Bills agreed to basically a $3 million thing that's going to result in people being eligible for some kind of cards that will have up to $50 on them or something. Do the people have to like not go to Bills games then? Because like, a lot of times in those class action suits, like you, you can't – like, okay, you, get, you can take this money, but then you can't like – complain about anything in the future as far as the- I don't uh, you probably can't get texts from them ever again. 
I don't know if it barred you from the stadium. Yeah, and their cheerleaders are suing for uh, basically not. This is giving them minimum wage. It yeah, sounds like the and, cheerleaders are right here. Yeah, I think so too. This is bullshit. Uh, it says, among other things, the lawsuit claims the Bills and two outside companies that manage the Jills, Citadel Communications and Stijon Productions, failed to reimburse the Jills for certain business expenses, failed to pay them in a timely manner, and took unlawful deductions and kickbacks from the wages and unlawfully took gratuities paid to the Jills. This is scummy. Uh, totally scummy. The Jills, I don't believe, are paid even. No, they're... But they're... The Bills This is talking about appearances. Right. The Bills don't control them. The Bills basically lease them, I guess. Right. At one point to Citadel and now to this other company. Right. So if if you go to a bar and they're having uh, a couple of the Jills show up to help promote the bar, promote whatever, a tailgate party or something like that, they're supposed to pay those two girls. It's one of the perks of being a Jill. I mean, if, if you but don't want... But they require you to do 30 of those without pay. They do. Yes. You do get to do paid ones, but you have to volunteer for 30 of them. Wow. And in some of those ones where the, the Jills are volunteering, either the sponsor of the event or the company representing the Bills are receiving money for that. Wow. And it turns out here, I, I didn't read all this story. I had heard about it, obviously, being local here and on local radio. But they were also required to not do a swimsuit calendar, but after they did the swimsuit calendar to buy 50 to 75 calendars and resell them on their own time. Like that's like pyramid scheme type stuff. Like it's brutal. Deadspin has a good write up of it. If you search Jill's, there's a more detailed version of it, but the bill, the bills, Ravens, Raiders, and one other team, Bengals have all now are getting cornered by things are going to drastically change with the way the NFL Ignores their cheerleaders. And they should. And I exploits mean, them. My my younger sister's a cheerleader at college and at that level you're doing competitions and stuff like that. So you can argue the usefulness of cheerleaders at an NFL level if you want it's to. Very negligible. Yeah. I mean like like I said, the college you've got the atmosphere, you've got the band, you've got the cheerleaders actually like are Performing. athletes. Yeah. yeah. I mean representing the school in competitions. Sure. Like so you, you can argue how useful they are, but if they're there, you might as well treat them right. You know what I mean? You're a you're a billion dollar team. Not paying them at all, making them pay for calendar travel that's, and that's embarrassing. Six hundred dollar uniforms and yeah, totally totally embarrassing. Auctioning them off at charity events, making them sit on the laps of golfers, yeah, calling man. them fat, subjecting them to weight things. <laughs> not, that's not not good, Bills. That's that's pretty. I mean. Do the Cowboys cheerleaders get subjected to this? I would imagine not. That's pretty prestigious. And yeah, that's a joke, Buffalo. Speaking of ESPN or billion dollar companies, ESPN is going to air their first playoff game next year. The league had a seven year window to give them a playoff game. It's next year. Okay. Uh, Mike... Is that the seventh year? Is that like what? No, it's the first year, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, Mike Tirico and the rest of the Monday Night crew will call it. Cool, I guess. So, yeah, whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and tomorrow. Maybe today, by the time you're hearing this, or maybe the day before, the league is finally going to release their schedule, um, which is cool because we'll know about it, <laughs> right. I guess. I mean, the way they have it now, you're only unaware of two games a year, right? Well, no, you're aware of all of them. At oh, this no, point, right. But yeah. just you're not aware of where what time, yeah. or when and what day. Uh, so that'll be cool. 
They they announced today on Twitter that they're announcing the schedule tomorrow. So they had an announcement for the About announcement. announcement. So the good. NFL loves itself. Good for them. All right. This is going really long, and I do want to talk about this last thing for a minute. So if we had more NFL stuff, we'll save it for another time. But our third thing today, we did this last week. We kind of talked about something we found on Deadspin. It was a gambling story right. we found. Well, this week I found a really interesting thing that I thought I was reading initially to hate Colin Cowherd more. Right, and which is, then, it's as easy if you're not a fan of his. And then I found out that Deadspin was probably the villain in this case. Yeah, I think so too. All right, so here's the story. A guy named Rick Bozich, who writes columns and appears on TV for a local station in Kentucky, wrote a column saying ridiculously that Colin Cowherd owed John Wall an apology for a rant that Colin Cowherd made four years ago saying that the Wizards had wasted the number one pick on Wall because he did the Dougie for 34 seconds, the very first home game introduction that he had. I think it was a preseason game, too. Basically, Coward said, look it, he's immature. He's too immature to play point guard. Other point guards who have found success in the league, who have championships like Rondo, like Isaiah Thomas, like Magic Johnson. Yeah, he goes on and on about Rondo. Wouldn't do praising that. Praising him. Right. W- wouldn't do that. That was four years ago. Well, now Bozich says that since they've won one playoff game <laughs> with Wall, Cowherd should take it back. Right. Okay. So Bozich is being petty. And he's, a, he's a local radio guy that, or local Kentucky, he's just a guy. local guy that held on to something that he remembered, waiting to pounce on Cowherd and point out right. how wrong. Waited he was. four years to get on this. Right. Ridiculous. Well. I could let that slide. And sure. Coward was kind of a dick. I thought playing off how he playing doesn't him. know who the guy is. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your station is. He's I'm writing your show. Bit, right. Okay, whatever. But the bigger issue that I've kind of got turned off by is Deadspin kind of turning it into a race issue and trying to race bait people, saying that, quote unquote, Listen to Cowherd spend four minutes trying to avoid saying the N-word. Yeah, that was the original and article. I don't buy that at all. Posted by David Matthews, who then posted an update to that article, who th- then, in a different article by Tom Lay, the one that came out now that discusses Bozich, and discusses this whole thing. But to me, it kind of makes it sound like it's about themselves. Like, Deadspin makes... They're very... Uh, opinionated they're very they're editorializing here a lot which is kind of what deadspin does sure that's okay right but i just don't see this as a race thing i don't either and like you said off the top or kind of alluded to it's easy to hate on colin cowherd and i am a colin cowherd detractor so am i i was ready to do it yeah but you know, this was just his normal stick. I don't think it had anything to do with race. I mean, I, you, that's drawing an awful. I think he was, making, especially considering all the examples of good point guards he gave were all black, with the exception of one, maybe. Yeah, I think he mentioned Steve Nash. Yes, Rick Rick Nash. No, no, Steve, Steve Nash. Nash. That was right. I did it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's what Colin Coward was saying. He was saying immaturity, point guard, point guards can't win if they're immature. Right, he pointed to That's all. not just the guy dancing, but the fact that there had to be some planning leading up to that and his decision-making, like, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. None of that came into his head. So bad decision. I I don't care that the guy did the doggy. I, I don't think it's the coolest thing ever, considering like he's never stepped onto an NBA court 
previous to that, but I don't care. But I don't think this is a race issue. I don't think so either. But Deadspin needs to chill out with the race stuff because there's plenty of examples of race in sports. And actually, we're going to talk about one with Ben Ryder a little bit later. So save it for when it's relevant. You don't need to invent it. And there's plenty of times and ways to hate on Colin Coward again. You don't need to invent them. (laughs) Right. All right. We went long. We're going to take a break and come back with Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated, where he is a senior writer covering mostly basketball, but occasionally football and even a little baseball. Uh, He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's best sports writer by The Village Voice. He is Sportscaster's royalty, having appeared... Now 17 times on the podcast, a warm sportscasters welcome to our main man, Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Hey, Steve. How are you? How are you doing today? Good, good. Happy Easter. Thank you. Happy Easter to you. We're recording this on Sunday. Most people are probably here around Tuesday or Wednesday, but uh, it's a busy week for you, a busy time, because the NBA playoffs started yesterday. And, you know, one thing that, that uh, was uh, I was thinking when I was looking over the matchups, well, Actually, the first thing I was thinking, and, and I wanted you to, to maybe hit on this first, is the Western Conference that much better than the Eastern Conference as it looks on paper? I mean, I think if you took out division, automatically making it for the divisions, only the Heat and the Pacers would actually qualify for the playoffs in the West. Is the balance really that different, or is it just some kind of... Yeah, it, it, it's pretty severe. I mean, I don't know if it's quite as severe as it looked early in the season um, when it was almost a joke, you know, how bad the East was. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, you take a team like the Suns, for instance, and miss the playoffs in the West, that's probably, a, you know, a, a six-seed or somewhere like that if they're in the East. And I'm taking into account, you know, a different schedule. Um, they obviously play the East teams more often. You know, that's part of this, too. Um, so, no, it's an issue, and that's why I think that, uh, you know, that Adam Silver and the NBA sort of floated that idea of eliminating the conferences and, you know, having more of a balanced schedule and having an, the idea that, you know, you, you aren't able to be a team like the Hawks, for instance, that, you know, 10 under 500 and still in the playoffs. Uh, because this isn't just a one-year issue. I mean, the West has been better um, for, I guess, going on about a decade now. This year's been probably the most glaring of all the seasons, and that's why, you know, you've heard more conversation about it. But especially with Indiana faltering, now, there just aren't that many teams from the East that you could legitimately see winning the title at this point outside of Miami. Do you have any reason, like, is there a reason why? For I mean, for so many years it's been like this? That's a good question. It's something I've thought about a little bit. I mean, I think part of it is, uh, a little bit the desirability of some of the Western cities. Um, I think that plays a role in their ability to lure free agents. There are Eastern cities that are desirable for free agents also, especially you know Miami and New York. Um, the West has maybe a little bit more desirability of what the players w- w- would be attracted to. Um, I think part of it is that the West traditionally has a little bit more of a fast-paced, um, of a modern style, and I think players are attracted to that as well. You also have a situation, see, where the Spurs just had so much, 
so many good people came through their front office. It became sort of a breeding ground. And I don't know if it's because they're in the West, but a lot of those kind of, a lot of the people from the Spurs were hired by other Western teams. Again, there are exceptions to that. Cleveland made hire from the Spurs, Atlanta. Um, but you have Oklahoma City with Sam Presti who came through that. Um, but it, it is tough to put a finger on exactly why. I mean, those are a few, um, you know, a few potential factors. The other thing is the things in the NBA just don't cycle out as quickly as they do in other sports because if you have a couple of good players in a market, they usually stay for a long time. You know, the changes in the NBA are, are slower when you talk about teams kind of becoming more competitive, less competitive than they are in a sport like football where it feels like every few years um, you, you can get teams that, you know, went 3-13 and 13 to suddenly go 13-3. and three. You know, I you mentioned the Spurs and – I thought the narrative to the finals last year was that the Spurs uh, were here one last time before this aging group kind of started to dis- retire and dismantle, and this was one last shot at a fifth title, and uh, yet here they are again, uh, number one seed in the league and the best team again all year long. I mean, what happened What happened to that uh, that narrative last year? They uh, Well, it- but this is a narrative, and this goes back to that point about the NBA. It just things don't change that quickly. You know, guys like like Tim Duncan and some of these older players, they don't just become they don't go from being really good to being nothing in, in a year or two. You know, that's sort of a. And I know that's you know our sports media culture now is so narrative based, and it, it's all or nothing. And, and again, in football, that's often the case. You have guys who do age very rapidly, and it all sort of changes quickly, but in the NBA it doesn't, and it takes me back a little bit, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, you know, the 90s jazz teams with Stockton and Malone, and every year it was sort of like, oh, they didn't get it done, you know, break it up, they're getting too old, and then they'd kind of be back again the next year. I know they didn't win any titles, but they would just keep coming back for more, and that's why, you know, in the NBA, sometimes the best course is patience, and just to roll the dice again with the same group and, and keep the band together. And the Spurs are really the best evidence of that, is that you just, they're always around. They're always in the mix. Sometimes they break through and win it. Sometimes they don't. Last year they had their heart broken. Um, but these guys just don't fall off quite as quickly as I think that we, we sometimes expect that they will. It wasn't as though just in last summer, just last summer, Manu Ginobili and Tim Duncan were going to become obsolete players. And look, that process has helped. By Popovich, I mean, he kept them all amazing accomplishments to 29 minutes or less this season and still ends up with the best record. So, look, they foster depth. They get other players to come in and fill in. They have a wonderful system. But I think part of it is sort of, you know, th- that tendency to jump to conclusions about player aging, um, in the NBA at least, is, is, a, is a little hollow. Yeah, and you mentioned Popovich and kind of mentioned this, but I was going to ask you, is he kind of writing the, blue, the blueprint on how to extend careers and how to stretch uh, players and teams through the long, grueling season and, and to keep teams fresh for the playoffs? And I mean, is this something that he's kind of revolutionizing or is this something we've seen in the past? I mean, I can't quite recall it like this. Well, you know, Doc Rivers did it a lot with that group in Boston, too. I mean, he, he really tried to rest them in the second half. It's a little more, what Popovich has done has been a little more balanced throughout the season. You know, I think that he, he looks out for this from day one. 
Whereas a lot of coaches, it's more like they look at the second half as, you know, let's get the rest late and have them be fresh going in. I think that the, you know, the balanced and sort of, um, you know, really calculated approach the Spurs had to rest and to keeping these guys fresh. Um, Maybe maybe in terms of that, uh, coaches with older teams have to look at that. But, you know, I think they've revolutionized a lot of things, and, and, and a lot of people have copied you know, many different aspects of what the Spurs did. But, no, when you have an older team, you, you have to look at this. I mean, the Clippers did it last year with, with Chris Paul. They really tried to keep, you know, the minutes down. Um, but they still fall short. It's not, a, it's not foolproof. You, know, you don't know it's going to work. Um, but it's definitely one way you give yourself a better chance with an older team. You know, when I look at the Western Conference and I think about the teams that are there and what kind of – what, what, what I just think, what I guess people would be uh, speculating as we go into the playoffs here, I would think like, all right, people are going to say, all right, well, are the Spurs, do, will the Spurs uh, be, will they have enough to get through all the rounds and make the finals? Or will, they, will, will, will someone be able to kind of pick them off at some point? It's going to be, all right, is, is Durant going to get another shot at LeBron? I think everyone's going to really want to pick Golden State to upset the Clippers. I feel like that's going to be everyone's bracket. Everyone's going to have Golden State over the Clippers. And we tape in this after game one, which Golden State won. So I'm sure there's even more people looking on that bandwagon. And then I think the 4-5 matchup is really interesting. I know Houston spent a lot of money in the offseason. But kind of when you look at the West, is there a narrative I'm missing? Is there one you change a little bit? What's, what are kind of like the big, broad sh- strokes that people are putting on this first round and the team's moving forward towards the finals? Well, you know, I think the big, if you're like a big storyline for the playoffs, to me it's, it's Durant. You know, I think he's probably the biggest story going in is, you know, will he break through? And, and is this really, I mean, this is kind of been Kevin Durant's year in a lot of ways. You know, his scoring is starting to find the season. He's going to win MVP, one would have to assume. Um, you know, it's in the, this will be the first year that he breaks through and does that and sort of eclipses LeBron. And the question is kind of, does he eclipse him in the end? You know, a lot of times in the NBA, when someone does define a season the way he has, that person ends up holding the trophy at the end. Um, you know, but Durant's going to have a rough, you know, it's going to be a rough ride to get there because he's going to have to take out the Spurs and he's, you know, he's probably going to take out the Clippers. And I know the Clippers lost game one, um, but they still have a lot of advantages, front court advantages in that series. Um, you know, they made me think that they, they could still be okay. You know, and look, I think even Durant's round one is really interesting because they drew Memphis who took him out last year. Granted, he was without Westbrook then, um, but Memphis is a team that nobody in the West wanted to play. And I know Oklahoma City won game one of that series, um, but Memphis is hardly, they're not a team that dies easily, and I think they'll be back. I think that, that could still be a really interesting, uh, a really interesting series moving forward. So you you think then that the the Spurs clearly have the the clear path to the Western Conference Finals? Do you do you think this is a Spurs Oklahoma City kind of destiny here? Who, who what team would most likely spoil either party? Yeah, I, mean, I think that they I think the Spurs do have a pretty clear shot at the conference finals. Although the Houston swept them this year, um, and they're eight zero against them going back. So you know Houston has done really well against the Spurs. Um, and Houston's an intriguing team. You know, I mean, you rarely see in the NBA a team, unless you sign LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, kind of take a huge leap all at once and, and get to the finals, um, the way you'd be asking Houston to do. 
Um, and there are still some question marks with Houston in end-of-game situations, and that they haven't really done this before. They haven't been through the battles. And generally speaking, in the NBA, you have to go through those battles um, to win it. And that's why I would say that San Antonio and Oklahoma City would be a cut above them. But they're, they're a difficult matchup for San Antonio in round two, and that's, that's definitely not a gimme series, um, series either. Even though I like the Spurs' experience there, you know, the, the, the Rockets have a lot, and, and especially if Pat Beverly um, is ready, and we don't really know exactly how he is physically. I mean, he's trying to play towards meniscus a few weeks ago. He's trying to play without surgery, which you just don't hear of very often. But if he's himself, which means an incredible test, um, who really bothers opposing point guards, that would be a difficult matchup for Tony Parker. And, look, I'm assuming Houston takes out Portland, you know, which is no sure thing. I mean, Portland is one of those three-point bombing teams, uh, you know, shades of Dallas a few years ago if they could get really hot. Um, the road that three-point shooting, the best record in the West um, at New Year's, and then they tailed off significantly. Um, so I would give the Rockets the edge in that series. But, but again, there are no sure things. I mean, the West is just... The West is very competitive. The only sure thing I would say is that San Antonio beats Dallas in round one. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, a lot of wins in that conference for sure. Teams are not going to be easy outs. And you look at the East, you wrote about uh, Noah this week for Sports Illustrated and, and just the way he's kind of developed his offensive game, rounded out his game, become an MVP candidate. And you mentioned that Indiana's kind of stumbled a little bit to finish the season and even lost game one to Atlanta. Is Chicago kind of a team that maybe people wrote off when uh, when Rose got injured that can seriously make a run here? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even Rose got injured. They also traded Dang, um, you know, for right. nothing. Yeah, you picks, mentioned that. Uh, and for Andrew Bynum, who they waived. So, you know, they're one of the most remarkable stories. I mean, it's not the most remarkable story in the NBA this season. I mean, they've got a bunch of guys who a lot of people probably haven't even heard of. You know, their leading scorer is D.J. Augustin, who has been with four teams in the last two years and was waived by the Raptors in December. Um, and it's hard to know exactly how they're doing this. It's just that Thibodeau, you know, he has such an incredible defensive system, and he's able to plug different guys in there who were sort of playing for their NBA lives, and they, they really play defense with their hair on fire, and they, and they play the system, and he's got Noah there as the catalyst for all that, um, who's able to execute that system. And now has sort of moved into that playmaking role that Rose vacated. Obviously, he's no Derrick Rose, but they're giving him the ball at the high post, and he's just picking out all these cutters and making passes that are almost reminiscent, I guess, of the early 2000 Kings teams, you know, with Weber and Vlade, where the big man would initiate the offense. So it's, pretty, it's really pretty to watch. And you look at the Bulls right now in that 4-5 or five series, you got to remember, whoever comes out of there, Bulls or Wizards, now is either facing you know, a, you know, a very dysfunctional Indiana team that has completely lost its way, or Atlanta, a team that really doesn't belong in the playoffs. So suddenly we're looking at a situation where, yeah, there is a road for the Bulls to the conference finals, or the Wizards, if the Wizards could, could get past the Bulls. Um, and, and that's just incredible when you think about you know, where the Bulls were. I mean, see, there was talk that they were trying to tank this season for a draft pick, um, and no one, Thibodeau just would not let that happen. So to even think about them talking about the conference finals, given where they were, um, it's just, you know, it's just a tremendous testament to, to both Thibodeau, Thibodeau and Noah. So what about Miami then? I mean, obviously it's a weak conference. Uh, they didn't win it. They almost, they almost pulled it out at the end. 
Um, they're certainly playing better basketball than Indiana if you just look at those two teams. But they've won the last two NBA Finals, and they were in it the year before that. And obviously LeBron James is the best player on the planet, and uh, they're going to have their say here. Is anyone – I mean – let me let me think. Will they face a seventh game on their way to the finals? Do you think, or am I over? Yeah, they usually do. They usually do mess around um, at some point early in the playoffs, and I think they will this year also. Um, you know, the Nets, the Nets have been playing such great basketball. They took Game One from the Raptors. Um, if they could finish off that series, I think they are a team that could. You know, we know how Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett kind of sometimes rile up LeBron and Wade. I think that could be a really good competitive series. It's, it's hard to imagine the Heat losing that series, um, but I definitely think that it could it, it could go very, very deep. Charlotte, I actually thought Charlotte could challenge a lot of teams, but they they just don't match up right with, with Miami. It, it, they, they've been brutalized by them, and Al Jefferson will get his points. He'll score a lot of points for Charlotte, uh, but Miami should get through that without much of a problem. That net series could test them. But, look, Indiana was the team. You know, Indiana was supposed to be the one to trip Miami. It was supposed to be Hibbert waiting at the rim, challenging LeBron. Um, you know, they felt all season like if they had that game seven at home, that they could take out the Heat. And, and they certainly looked like they were going to. But the Heat are fortunate. I mean, they, their biggest challenger was the Pacers, and the Pacers have completely fallen off. So, at this point, the Heat could skate through the Eastern Conference, even if they're not at their best, even if they're not anything like what we saw the last couple of years, which they haven't been. I mean, they haven't played with that kind of defensive intensity. Wade has been kind of a non-factor. It's been all on LeBron. Um, so, they might be less than what they were, and yet that will likely still be enough to get them through the East, given um, the diminished state of Indiana. Is this diminished state of Indiana? Is that a sure thing? Is there any way that Indiana can get back what they had? Is it too late? Like, how far gone is Indiana? I will admit I haven't seen enough of them, but I mean, is it? Are we? Is everyone jumping off too soon? Or I mean, is is I don't know. Well, I would have told you yes before yesterday. I mean, I thought I, I still thought Indiana in the finals, and then I saw them in Game One. And they looked as lost as they have the last couple months. And I sort of thought it was a team, you know, there are a lot of cases in the NBA where people overreact to second-half struggles. And that goes back to situations with the Heat the last couple of years, um, with the Celtics, the Doc River Celtics. And when you play a high-intensity, very demanding kind of style that the Pacers play defensively, it's sort of just hard for teams to sustain that, you know, the whole season. But then they go out in game one at home. It worked so hard for home court. They're playing a, you know, an inferior Hawks team, and they got blown out again. I mean, they just they have not played well now for two months. And clearly the playoffs did not make them throw a switch. And, and, and it's obviously not even a matter of throwing a switch. I mean, there are some inter- must be some internal problems there. They've always been an offensively challenged team. Um, that was just the elite. Almost, they were historically good defensively for the first few months of this season, um, and something's going on there. And, and I, I don't love like speculating on what it is, um, but there's been some. There has to be some dysfunction triggered by some of those deadline moves. I mean, whenever people say chemistry doesn't matter, I think you point to this team because they really had a, you know a great chemistry, and, and it must have been very delicate because just the moves of Danny Granger going to the Clippers. 
Orlando Johnson, a bench guy, getting jettisoned. They bring in Bynum. They bring in Evan Turner. I don't want to put this on Bynum because he's barely played. Um, whatever that delicate alchemy was, was upset. And they are not who they were. I mean, and I don't know if it's, if it's Hibbert wanting more touches. I think that's part of it. Paul George, you know, we may have overrated him a bit early in the season when people were, you know, saying he's the best two-way player in the NBA. You know, that's not the case. George Hill has not played well. And David West has kind of aged. But they, they have lost whatever kind of strut they had before. And it's, uh, it's a shame to see because they were one of those elite teams and they had taken, um, no pun intended, they had taken the paces to get to the finals and potentially win a championship. And it's like all of a sudden that the bottom dropped out of them. Sportscaster here with Lee Jenkins talking a little bit about the NBA playoffs. We all, one thing that we've talked about a lot, kind of a running theme in our conversations, I've always kind of come back when I've thought of it and asked you about the last bunch of number one picks in the league and kind of like what their progress was. And obviously John Wall is a guy who's made a huge step forward this year. And even Blake Griffin, who's kind of maybe at the tail end of that conversation of a guy that we'd go back to and talk about. Uh, I've read a lot about kind of the emergence of his overall game in terms of offense and, and kind of the way he's developed as a player. So there's those two guys. But are there any other guys that you think uh, this year, uh, being on the big stage here in the spring, are kind of kind of emerge a little bit or, or kind of like you know stick their face above the crowd and say, hey, I'm a guy who can maybe win a championship one day, if not now? Yeah, I mean, Wall is definitely, I think, the best candidate. I mean, I think Wall is... I mean, I mean Griffin also, I mean, you said the two that are probably stand out the most. And what Griffin's done this season is, you know, he's been developing this for a while. It's not all of a sudden. A lot of this is just natural growth and progression. But he's got a little mid-range jumper now. He's got a mid-range game. And so, you know, with a guy like Griffin, that forces teams to respect it. And then he's just one dribble to the basket and dunk. So... The, the, the evolution of that has made him a more dynamic threat. He's always been a good passer, and I think Doc has put him in positions where you see him face up more, and he's able to he's able to make some passes. He's able to use his quickness um, more, more than he was before, even when he was playing, you know, with his back to guys. So I think Gri- Griffin made a huge step forward. He's become a top five player. He had a horrible game one, um, and we'll see with him if it translates to the playoffs. But in general, he's had an incredible year. He carried that team and, and become, you know, one of those next MVP candidates after LeBron and Durant. You know, he's in there with, with Noah, Love, Aldridge, Al Jefferson. Um, and then the other guy you mentioned was Wall, who, I, you know, it's funny. For a while with this whole point guard revolution, you'd hear all these names, you know, so many different names, Westbrook, Rose, Lillard, you know, Kyrie Irving, another one of those number one picks who's fallen a little flat. And Wall was kind of forgot, the forgotten man in some ways. Um, and he's another guy who had to, you know, develop his shot, you know, but he's so fast. I mean, he's just got such great speed. He's a one-man fast break. His shot's gotten better. He's worked with the same good trainer who had Rose and Westbrook and helped them with their shot, um, Rob McClanahan. And you know, he has become, I think, a guy who could be a breakout star in the playoffs. You know, that's, I know a lot of people have picked Chicago in the first round. I have two. Um, but the Wizards, Wizards are probably more talented overall than the Bulls, and I wouldn't put it past them, um, you know, to take that first round series and then get a, get in a matchup with Atlanta in the second round if Indiana is really this far gone, um, and, and that would be intriguing because you could potentially see the Wizards in the conference finals, which I know would 
shock a lot of people. Um, but John Wall's a guy who I think has been uh, due for a breakthrough. I mean, he's one of those one-and-done Kentucky guys. He went to a dysfunctional situation in Washington, had terrible teammates. Um, it, was, it was just a lost environment. And now I think that they've emerged from that a bit. And as a result, he's emerged, too. And it's good to see, because John Wall is one of the most electrifying players. I mean, when Rose is going, I don't really think there's any anything really like watching him. You know, he's one of those guys who, like, I buy a ticket to see Derrick Rose, uh, just because when he's driving and doing what he does in midair, it, you know, I don't think anybody really can replicate that. And some of the gifts Wall has, um, well, maybe not as strong as Rose, maybe. Um, some of that, that speed element is, is fun to behold. So is it kind of sounding like you're looking at Oklahoma City-Miami? Is that kind of the vibe I'm getting for, from you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think Oklahoma City and Indiana, so I hate coming off that after one day. Um, but, I, you know, I just can't believe how badly Indiana played yesterday. I mean, I guess I should. They've been showing it for months. Um, but, yeah, I, do, I think Oklahoma City will see Oklahoma City gets there. I just... You know, I'm pretty simplistic about, and I'm a horrible prognosticator. I mean, it's awful, so take that with a grain of salt. But I usually think in the NBA, uh, you know, the guy who defines the season often wins the championship, kind of your best of best player. And this year, Durant's been the best player. And, it, you know, there's times to see when it's somebody's turn. And, like, a couple years ago, it was just it was LeBron's turn to win the championship. And this, to me, seems like Durant's turn. Um, they're not as good as they were, or I shouldn't say that. I should, they're not as talented as they were when they fell to Miami in the finals. But they're a little more experienced, and Durant has become um, such a balanced player, such a smart player. You know, he knows when to pass. He's a better defender. I think he and Westbrook have figured some things out. So even though they don't have Harden, and they're not, you know, quite what they were from a, uh, you know, in terms of an entertainment value a couple years ago. Yeah, you know, I think Durant is such a good player that, that he's going to be hard to eliminate this season. All right, Lee, uh, you can find Lee on Twitter. He's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Uh, like I said, he had a cover story last week about Noah. Or it wasn't a cover story, but um, uh, Boston was on the cover, I think, of that one. So if you're looking for the issue, it's the Boston Strong. I think that was SL Price piece there. Uh, real quick, uh, did you see the Pistons doc that ESPN did? You know, I haven't seen it yet. I'm sorry. I feel like everybody in the NBA has seen it, though. And, <laughs> I was just thinking uh, you of know, I just, all the players have talked about it. Yeah, I was just thinking of it when you were mentioning about uh, how it could be Oklahoma City's turn. Because I think that that was a, a point that the doc kind of made, like how eventually it just kind of became Indiana's turn. That kind of sh- finally got over the, the hill with, uh, with the Celtics and then broke through into the finals and took one on their the chin from the Lakers and then got back and you know it's kind of their their year eventually but no it's pretty good I would definitely say check it out and then one last real quick thing I want to ask you just because I thought of it while we were talking too uh, is that uh the lottery's coming up and obviously the Eastern Conference is really weak and everyone has said that this is a really really great draft just uh, I'm sure I mean I wouldn't hold you to this or whatever but do, do you ever maybe even over the course of the season or at some point do you ever think Wow, there's that team. If they can get paired with that guy in that draft, that could really set them up over the course of the next bunch of years. Have you thought of that at all? Is that a thought of a guy and a team matching up potentially crossed your mind at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it always crosses your mind. It's just, you know, with this draft, it's just been such an it's just been such an odd process because I mean, this draft got so much hype so right. early. 
And then more recently, in the last couple months, when you talk to you know people around the league, scouts, and a couple GMs, they they believe it's not as impactful of a draft as everybody sort of thought it was early, and that it was overstated, and that there aren't any sort of franchise saviors in this draft. Um, but then, now as we get closer, and you're sort of able to watch these guys in conference tournaments and you know in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I gotta say, I, mean, I think it looks really deep, and that there are a lot. Of, maybe there are franchise saviors. Maybe there's not a LeBron or a Durant in this class, but I think there are gonna be a lot of guys who, to your point, are going to be sort of second best players on their teams for a long time. At worst, you know, I mean, I was Wiggins in that conference tournament, and you know, he was every bit as good as what the hype said. I know he got eliminated early in the NCAA's, but what, whatever. So you know, there's going to be, uh, you know. And GM once told me that, like, in every draft, the good draft, the bad draft, there are 10 good players that come out of it. And you don't know when they're going to fall, but it's about 10. And I think this draft could push the limit to that because, you know, there are enough, there are just, there's enough intriguing prospects at the top that it's going to push some of those B-level prospects down. And so late in the first round, mid-first round, there could be some steals to be had, um, you know, up top. I think one thing is that so many teams now have good point guards that some of these point guards coming out, um, you know, they could run into situations where teams don't necessarily want to take them, you know, that high. Like a guy like Exum or Marcus Smart, you know, that could be an issue uh, for them. And then unless teams need bigs that a guy like Embiid, um, if a team got him, he could be the missing link. But, you know, Embiid's... And he's a wild card. I mean, given his back and what we've seen out of him, you know, could he be the next Hakeem Olajuwon or could he be the next Michael of Candy? It's like, you know, that's going to be a really risky play, you know, high risk, high reward for, for whoever takes him. All right, Lee, thank you so much. You know, and, and of those, oh, yeah. actually, I mean, Parker's probably the safest of the lot. I mean, talking to GMs, everybody seems to say Parker's going to be, you know, a really good second option, second best player on a team. Um, you know, a guy who's going to score 18 points in the league and, you know, be a really good player. So I think he's probably the safest. Wiggins' crazy athleticism makes him, um, you know, a guy who's going to be very enticing and hard to pass up, and then the same goes with Embiid's size. Got it. Yeah, I, I'm interested in Parker. I, I was kind of a little bit surprised he left just because I thought the whole huh. process was about him saying how he was going to either – like do a Mormon mission for two years or play college basketball for two years. I think it was Jeff Benedict who wrote a cover story a couple years ago about him uh, for SI, and we had him on the show. And I don't know. I guess maybe that the illusion that that would actually happen kind of faded quite a bit as this year went on. I, I think maybe it became kind of obvious he was a one and done. But I don't know. I guess I, I guess he changed his mind. I don't know. I, maybe I have to go back and yeah, read the story. Yeah, I think those are always sweet stories, sweet right. things people say. And- you know they're fun. Um, it, it's a fun. It's a, kind of a quaint concept um, and, and notion that that somebody would do that. Or you know, you hear guys talk about coming back to school a lot. You know, they, they haven't made up their mind, um, and it kind of you know provokes some excitement. Like, oh, maybe this this guy won't be a one and done. But usually, it's a you know it's a very difficult thing to pass up. And um, uh, you know, I'm always I'm always skeptical of those kinds of storylines because you know history tells us that. You know, some people may be a little different, but you know, when they're looking at the money of going in the top five in the NBA draft and the ability to make an impact right away, it's, it's, a, it's a nearly impossible thing for 
any of these guys staying out to the team. You know, it'd be so interesting if the NBA uh, kind of decided to do kind of what hockey did and it does and just have a draft year. Like, let's say it's, you know, this year we're going to draft people born in 96. This year we're going to draft people born in 97. Do it like that. And then just because you're drafted doesn't mean you can't go to college. Maybe you still say you can go that one year, but you're still associated with the team. And then when your season ends, you can just leave then. You know, so like, yeah, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. I just don't know how many first round. I mean, guys who are drafted in the first round, I, I just don't know how many of them would go to would college. Go at all, right? Yeah. You know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they now because again, I mean, in in hockey, correct me if I'm wrong. I think college is probably uh, you know more appealing than, than going to the through the minor league system. Um, or maybe it's a split. But like I know for baseball players, they're weighing that all the time. Do I want to go ride a bus? you know, through the middle of nowhere, do I want to go to college? College sometimes wins out in that and helps. I think that's where the decision lies. Do you want the money and the buses, or do you want to put off the money and have college? And so college, I think, sometimes wins out in that. But with the NBA, you know, they're getting to actually play in the NBA in most cases. Yeah, they might have to have a D-League spin here and there, but most of them are really getting to be in the NBA. And it, it just, it, it's just a hard sell on you know, turning down the NBA to go to college. I know college is great, um, but playing in the NBA is, you know, for a lot of these kind of people we're talking about, it's a very special, it's a very special honor and obviously an extremely lucrative one. Yeah, yep. Yeah, all right. Well, I, I would, we'll have to maybe go into that. Maybe we can do that more in the summer and talk about that a little bit more because that is interesting. But uh, thank you so much for doing this. Enjoy the baseball game. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Steve. Take care. Thanks, Lee. All right, I want to thank Lee Jenkins for making his unprecedented 17th appearance on the Sportscasters. We always love and appreciate having Lee on, one of the nicest guys, if not the nicest guy that we've come across since doing this podcast, and that's why we like to have him on so much, just because every time he's on, it's awesome. So thanks again to Lee for being on. Hope you enjoyed that really kind of in-depth look at the NBA playoffs, and we'll do more on the playoffs as it goes on. I'll reach out to Taz Mellis, see if he wants to come in, talk a little bit about it. It's amazing how those guys have taken off since they've been a part of the show. Not because we did anything, because they did. But when we first started having them on, it was right when they first came to Grantland. And uh, now they're with NBA TV and a new name for their podcast, and it's really taken off. Book club update today. Up, up, and away. The Kid, The Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro... The Grand Orange, Yuppie, The Crazy Business of Baseball, and The Ill-Fated but Unforgettable Montreal Expos by Jonah Carey. It's his second time being the author of a book club book of the month. One of the very first ones we did was his first New York Times bestselling book, The Extra 2%. This one, a passion project. We know Jonah Carey, the most famous Expos fan alive. And we mentioned last week during the book club update that he has kind of been everywhere promoting this. And tonight, if you do hear this on Tuesday, not sure if you do or not, but on Tuesday, he's going to be on Seth Meyers' show, uh, whatever that's called, but the one after Fallon, uh, to promote the book. So he's gotten really great exposure for this book, uh, which I know it has to be really awesome for him. And we'll talk to him about it when we get him on. I know he's going to come on with us maybe next week, maybe the week after, I'm not sure. But he's going to come on soon, and I know that this is such an important project to him 
that he's got to be thrilled, not just as an author, uh, because people, you know, I'm sure every author obviously writes a book for people to read it, and they're thrilled when people do. But I imagine when it's a passion project like this was for Jonah, that it, there's a little bit of even more importance to him uh, to get this book read. And it, he mentioned about how there's maybe a little bit of glimmer that baseball could be in Montreal again someday. He mentioned that on the Keith Oberman show, maybe other places, because I know he's been a lot of places. And that's sometimes a challenge for us, uh, not because uh, – but uh, we mentioned this with Jeff Perlman when he was on – is that we wait a month after the book is out usually to have the author on, which can mean it's sort of towards the end of the media tour, which could mean that you have, as a listener have already seen or heard the author in many different platforms. So it's kind of a challenge for us in a good way to try to still find unique and interesting things to talk with the author about. Uh, so it's going to be a challenge again with the book. But it's a great, great read. I'm about 10 chapters in or so are... I don't even know if that's right because I don't necessarily pay attention to how things are numbered. Uh, but I'm just about to the first set of pictures. I think there's two sets of pictures in the book. Uh, page 209, oh, man. And there's uh, about 400 pages. So I'm about midway through. I'm going to reach out to Jonah. Make sure you check it out. Uh, we talked with uh, with Perlman last month about the blurbs on his book and how many of the people who wrote them had been guests on this show. Again, true with this book, as Will Leach, Joe Piznanski, I have blurbs on the back of the book. But make sure you check it out. All right, speaking of baseball, we're going to talk a little bit more about it with Ben Ryder from ES... No, not from ESPN. Ben Ryder's from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. So we'll take a quick break and come back with Ben and talk a little bit of baseball. 20 games in already. <laughs> Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. Today, he is a writer for Sports Illustrated, where he covers baseball, football, and he spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. Uh, He writes for the website and um, also is making his about sixth appearance now on the podcast. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. Thanks, man. That's great. Yeah, you're, you're moving up. I'm trying to think who it is. There's someone who gets really mad that the amount... Oh, it's Jeff Passan, another baseball writer. He gets really mad that... he. I think he's been on maybe like nine or ten times, and he gets really mad uh-huh. that that's not the most. And yeah, I, what's, who's the all-time leader here? Lee Jenkins. How many has Lee been on? Okay, so he is on this one as well. You know, NBA playoffs, okay. obviously, uh, you know, it's a time we usually hit him up. That's number 17. Oh my god! Yeah. I got a ways to go to, to catch my friend Lee there. Yeah, Lee Lee is way too good to us. You know what it is? Is it's like we got guys. You know, like we got our guys. Like we got our baseball guys, mm-hmm. our hockey guys, our baseball guys. We don't have a lot of basketball guys. I think it's All like, right. you know. So like we just go, and he's just so nice, and he never says no, and I don't know. And he's been on well, he's, his first one was like episode five. You know, so he's been with us the whole time. So that. Yeah, well, he's also one of the best uh, sports writers in the country, oh, so I'm sure that plays he, he into it as well. It. Yeah, he kills it. So, <laughs> I I was talking to Jeff Perlman a couple weeks ago. 
about his new book, and we were talking a lot about pro- uh, process. And I was thinking about this with baseball writers. I want to ask you about this. When you start a season, when it's April, and I'm sure everyone in the sport goes through this, do you ever like look ahead and think, wow, okay, here we go, another season, and this isn't going to end until October. We've got 162 games. Like, How do you pace yourself as someone writing about the sport, as I'm sure people who play it and manage it and call it have to do as well like what is it that you go through as a writer to pace yourself through the season right well i guess it's somewhat like um it is for the players or for fans right there are certain uh, markers every year that kind of give you your bearings and you know that you'll spend a lot of february march in arizona and florida for spring training you know october you'll be on the road for the playoffs there's the all-star break and things like that um but as far as, as work and as far as your work product you know, a lot of people always ask me, you know, do, do I root for teams? You know, do I root for uh, the Yankees, which I grew up uh, rooting for as a New Jersey guy, a guy from New Jersey? Um, and the answer is, for this job, no, not really. You know, I'm really rooting for stories, right? I'm rooting right. for stories that I want to do. Um, I'm rooting for players who I want to write about to do interesting things, um, either good or bad. So I guess that you are kind of following along with the news just like anybody else, and you are kind of, you know, subconsciously not pulling for certain things, so there's certainly a different reason to why you're doing that. And I know uh, you're probably not going to have to kind of answer this, but is there anything specifically right now that you're rooting for? Um, anything specifically right now I'm rooting for? Uh, you know, Probably not. Uh, not that I would get into. Right. Uh, <laughs> I had to ask. But, but, I knew you wouldn't, but I had. You know, people would say if I didn't ask you, they would make fun of me. You know, so I had to. I mean, there's no. I mean, no. It's a good, I mean, you know, uh, I'm interested in Yasiel Puig. I've actually written two features about him for the magazine already. Um, yeah, we've talked about that actually on one right. of them on this show. Yeah, yeah we yeah, have. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm not. I'm. I'm kind of just rooting for him to. Uh, you know, stay interesting, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm fascinated by the continued backlash against him for just kind of being exuberant, right? Um, you know, he's kind of running up against all these old social norms um, and all these things, and there's all sorts of factors involved, including race, national origin, various cultural things and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's certainly one story um, that I'm going to continue to follow, you know, set aside the fact he is, I think, a completely unique player um, and a great player. So I think that's certainly one of many stories that I'm following and kind of hope will remain interesting and take uh, take some turns along the way. You said you grew up in in Jersey rooting for the Yankees. Were you a Jeter guy? Um, You know, I I respect him as anybody does for what he does, but but even growing up, I was never... uh, you know, I never had a number two jersey or anything like that. Who is your I guy? Probably healthy, maintain a healthy, uh, you know, distance kind of a, as a journalist for him now. Who was your guy? Did you have a guy? Like I was a big Dave Justice oh. guy. Like I love Dave Justice. Dave Justice guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, my favorite uh, as a teenager, I think, was actually Alfonso Soriano. Okay. Um, back when he was just a real five-tool threat, and I always thought he had the greatest kind of at-bat music. Um, of anybody, which I thought was very funny, it was the song Peaches and Cream, the old, old R&B song, which I thought was, uh, you know, a, a funny choice, to say the least, and that was just another reason why I really liked Soriano, 
I mean, you know, even in my jaded journalist uh, period of my life, I was still somewhat pleased to see him come back to the Yankees last year and stay there for this year. You know, an interesting, well, maybe not that interesting, but maybe it is. The one time I was at the old Yankee Stadium was the summer before. It's kind of a famous Yankees-Red Sox series. And I'll, uh, you'll remember it. So it was bef- it was the 4th of July weekend, and it was the 2003 season. So that's that's right before the first of the two consecutive ALCS. And it was a four-game series. And the first two games, the Red Sox murdered the Yankees. And the third game was a Mucina-Pedro game where Pedro hit Soriano and Jeter in back-to-back at-bats to start the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but anyway, I was at the first two games, and Soriano was the only Yankee I seen hit a home run at Old Yankee Stadium. So, like I said, yeah, it wasn't that interesting. But uh, no, no, he, he was. Uh, you know, was, you always think, you know, what would have been, what might have been, um, had that trade for Arod never happened. You know, I don't think the Yankees would have given it back. Uh, you know, they did get one World Series out of it in a lot of good years, um, even for all the distractions Arod's been. But, you know, that's one of the great what-ifs, I think, right now. You know, what if that had never happened? Or what if the Red Sox trade went through? Right. right and he good. ends up there instead, yeah. we Actually, Dave Damashek and I, I sound like an idiot mentioning all these people, but another guy who's been on the show, Dave, uh, he does these what-if what if L's for the NFL, and I told him if he ever does them for baseball, he should do that. And I thought of that, too, at one point. Yeah. be interesting. Well, how many times has Dave been on the show? Uh, a lot. Probably... <laughs> 12, something like that, quite a bit. Man, yeah. you need to make a leaderboard. You need to put a leaderboard online. Like, we, do, we, do have a, we do have know, a spreadsheet. Like, uh, we have a spreadsheet, and we always consider putting it on the website, but we didn't know if like we were making people look bad. Like, no. Like, like, are people going to look at that and like, wow, this guy's got way too much time on his hands to appear on this show 20 times, or then or is it the other way? People are like, wow, what a jerk that guy is. He's only come out once in 2009 and never <laughs> came back, you know, so we weren't really sure if we should put it up or not, but. I don't think so. I think it would be cool. You could do some, like, 538-type analysis and say metric analysis as well, like words spoken per minute or, like, uh, average, you know, appearance length or, you know, <laughs> level, of vo- level of vocabulary used according to that test or something like that. Yeah. Well, this, I'm talking to a Yale guy for sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right. Okay, one other thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, you mentioned Soriano. This is just a aside, and then I ask you some serious baseball stuff. But you said you okay. like Soriano's at-bat music, so this is always a big question. Like, with what would yours be? What would mine be? Yeah, like if you're pinch hitting, they're like, "Oh, let's give you an at this guy an at bat." And you, what would you pick? Yeah, I'm gonna put some thought into this one, All right. um, and and you come can... back for my appearance number seven. I'll have a firm answer for Got you. Got it. All right. But my my favorite answer, a friend of mine, um, you know, we used to talk about this, and would ask him, you know, like, well, "What would your at bat music be?" And the guy, without hesitation, says, 50 Cent Magic Stick." Of course, like that's the obvious answer. So I don't know. I guess some people have that on the tip of their tongue, but yeah. they don't necessarily. I don't either. I don't know. It would have to be a Pearl Jam song, but I don't know what. That uh, <laughs> Jason Grilly, he comes out of the "Out to Whipping" by Pearl Jam. That's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. They did a story on Grilly last you year. You talked all about that. Yeah, and uh, they right after they got eliminated, Pearl Jam was in Pittsburgh, and Grilly made it back for the show, and he came onto the stage and basically cut a wrestling promo before Pearl Jam played Whipping, and he stayed on the stage and, like, danced around like a maniac during Whipping. It was pretty cool. 
Wow, that is cool. Yeah, so. Uh, all right. So the season is, what, almost 20 games. Not quite 20 games, but almost 20 games in. And I'm wondering, like, as someone who's covering it, what has piqued your interest so far? And I have something that's piqued mine that I'm going to keep an eye on, but, and I'll tell you about it and see what you think. But what what has kind of caught your eye so far? Well, an awful lot, really. You know, how good the Brewers are, how bad the Diamondbacks are so far. Um you know, I was I thought that maybe the A's would struggle a bit. I actually did not take them to make the playoffs in the wake of, you know, the Jared Parker injury and the A.J. Griffin injury. He's not back yet. I did not expect them to be, you know, by run differential anyway, the best team in baseball at this point. Um, you know, it, it's been a very interesting start in a lot of ways. I'm not sure if I had to redo my predictions, I would have changed anything off of 20 games. Um, but, yeah, there's certain things that certainly immediately jumped out at you. You know what is, has jumped out at me, and I, maybe it's I'm overthinking it a little bit, but I don't think that Craig Kimbrell and uh, the Braves, Freddie Gonzalez, that's his name, right, the Braves manager, those guys mm-hmm. are nowhere near on the same page. Uh, they, you don't think the, so? The Braves ended their season with Craig Kimbrell standing in the bullpen at Dodger Stadium pissed off with his hands on his hips and a ball in his glove, aggravated that he wasn't in there in the eighth inning. He pouted on his way off the mound the other day um, when they took him out Mm -hmm. in the ninth, uh, and he blew a save last night, and everyone's been asking him about his shoulder, and they shut him down for a few days, and he... I don't think thought he was as injured as they did. And it's just, it's really strange. I just don't think those guys are on the same page. And I just wonder if that's going to come to a head at some point or if I'm overthinking. It might. I mean, you know, Kimbrell just signed a four year, $42 million extension, which for a closer career is unprecedented. So I think he has uh, certain reasons to kind of stay the course with Freddie Gonzalez. But yeah, I mean, the same thing happened with this team last year. Early on, when they had you know Freddie Freeman on the DL, uh, when he didn't really think he had to be there and stuff, um, I just think this is a type of team that maybe is cautious with injuries like that. Um, I think Freddie Gonzalez does uh, sometimes lean towards the overly conservative strategically as well, which you know might upset Kimbrel once in a while. Just wants to get out there and throw gas, but uh, you know this is the sort of thing that if the Braves continue to roll, you know they're in first place again. Um, these types of things tend to get swept under the carpet pretty fast. Yeah, Freddie Freeman, he's a stud too. And uh, it's interesting, the Braves play a lot, have played a lot of uh, NL East games so far, and I think they've only lost one series so far this year to the Mets, but I don't know. So an interesting start there. That's been pretty interesting. What do you think of uh, Harper getting pulled for not hustling, quote-unquote? No, you know, I thought, you know, yeah, that was a fine move. Matt Williams is obviously a hard-nosed type of guy. You know, he likes grittiness. He sent a message to Bryce Harper. But, you know, we were chatting a little bit about Yasiel Puig before, and I thought it was interesting uh, thinking about what Harper did compared to what, what people always say about Puig, right? Like, if Puig does not hustle, you know, the, the, the sky is falling down. You know, everybody freaks out. You know, this guy doesn't play the game the right way, yada, yada, yada. You know, Harper does the same thing, and it seems like at least an equal amount of the backlash was directed at his manager for pulling it. So it's just all these little things like that. You're like, why is it not the same for one guy as the other? It really makes you think um, 
deeper about the game than just what's on the surface in incidents like this. Yeah, you mentioned race before. Is that what? Is that kind of what you're getting at? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that there's a racial component. There's a uh, you know cultural component. You know, Bryce Harper is from Vegas. He's not from Cuba. Right. Um, things like that. Uh, but you know, people I think like Harper a little more. You know, for whatever reason. But yeah, I'm sure it's all just all tied in together and all very complex. Um, and I like kind of taking a step back when things like that happen and thinking about why it seems as if, you know, public, you know, if we talk about it as a monolith like that, the public backlash to incidents that seem very similar can be so different. You know, every spring we have really big, or before spring, winter, every winter we have really big signings. You know, guys get insane amounts of money to stay where they are, to move, whatever. Uh, and... Um, Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they're disaster. Like Anaheim seems to just can't hit on one. Uh, you know, <laughs> when Josh Hamilton looks like he's ready for a huge year, he slides in head first like a dummy. He's got to go on the DL. Uh, but then there's like sneaky ones that seem to really sometimes pay off. And I was thinking a little bit about. I've noticed Tim Hudson is off to a great start. I don't think he has a walk yet. And I don't know that there was that much of an expectation considering how gruesome his season ended last year for that signing in San Francisco. What do you think about Hudson and maybe some other kind of off-the-radar signings that seem to be paying off for teams so far? Right. I think the, the Hudson signing, and you're right, he has not won based on balls in 30 innings, which is remarkable. The Hudson signing was really one that I liked a lot, and you know, I didn't give it as much thought at the time either. But now when you see how it's going to start to change that team already, um, you start to like it more and more. Uh, he's really been a stabilizing influence in the middle of the team. Those ter- middle of the rotation of a team that was terribly disappointing last year. Um, kind of just the, the picture perfect number three starter uh, there. Um, I think that this is a team that, yes, yeah, certainly I picked them to win a wild card. You know, I don't think they're quite on the Dodgers level in the long run of a 162 game season. But yeah, I certainly, certainly think that um, signing like Hudson and also you know. Maybe Brandon Belt is becoming a power hitter that people thought he was going to be. You know, Mike Morse, I think, gives him some much-needed power. You know, little things like that. I think that Brian Sabian, who's much maligned a lot of the time, uh, has done a really good job um, this offseason. Another one I like is Scott Casimir, right? You know, we're talking about yeah. the A's. We're talking about, talking about their, uh, you know, injury problems. You know, Jared Parker's out. A.J. Griffin hasn't pitched yet. A lot of people, including me, thought, hey, for a guy who was out of baseball two years ago, two years for $22 million seems like an awful lot, right? But the A's certainly know uh, how to get the most out of pitchers. You, know, you look at this guy, Jesse Chavez, come out of nowhere. He's basically pitching like their ace. They know how to do that. They have a good defense. They're playing a big ballpark. And Scott Kazer has been just terrific so far. You know, through four starts, he's a 1.65 ERA. His fastball sitting in the low 90s, a lot of strikeouts. It seems like the A's always, like, make these signings, you know, where they sign guys and people are like, how, why is this team stretching for him? You know, I'm thinking how they keep signing Coco Chris. People are like, why are they spending so much money on Coco Chris? Um, a lot of times these things seem to work out for them. And as we said, they currently have the best run differential in baseball, and they're not even entirely healthy. Yeah, the A's are masters at pitching who to sign and sometimes even who not to sign. I read a really good article. I, don't, I can't recall who wrote it, so I can't give credit, but someone wrote a great article about how maybe the finest move in Moneyball history is not extending Hudson, Mulder, or Zito. 
Right. You know, knowing what, yeah. you know, because so much of the book, people, a lot of people have read it, is about positioning themselves to draft Mulder, I know, is one thing in the book that's big. And, you know, so much of, of Moneyball is building that staff and, and getting the team. And But they didn't extend any of those guys. And you can almost make it out. Maybe Hudson's the one. Maybe they would have if in retrospect. Maybe, maybe not. But, yeah, you can definitely make a case that it was the right move for Zito in Mulder's case. Yeah, I mean, they're not perfect uh, by any means. You know, they'd certainly... Uh, like to have that Carlos Gonzalez trade back as anybody would, and they'll be the first to admit they're not perfect. But, you know, we're not the first to say that they certainly know what they're doing to a degree that most teams don't. Do you think anyone's in trouble? Um, maybe not now, but maybe the next 20 or 30 games are really important for any managers or general managers. Do you think there's any unhappy owners out there right now? Um, in general, I mean, it's, I'm not sure that there's any team besides the Diamondbacks that's truly horrible that you didn't expect to be horrible, right? Like, I think if, you know, Seattle, I think it's too early to judge because, yeah, they've, after a good start, they've lost seven in a row, but, you know, they still don't have most of their pitching staff healthy, and that should come. Um, you know, I, I guess you have to be concerned if you're Kevin Towers and Kirk Gibson in Arizona, right? Like, this is a team that right. I don't think many people thought that they'd contend for the NL West, but I think most people thought they'd be kind of, you know, around 500, a little better. This is by far the worst team in the league. They're five and seventeen. One They're negative fifty-five and run differential. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's time to start trying to call up Archie Bradley to give them some reinforcements in the rotation or what. But this team needs to do something because they're just remarkably bad. Bad. I can't quite understand why. Yeah, and they only have one win at home, which is, I mean. That's crazy. Yeah, if you're gonna... maybe the Dodgers cursed that pool or something. Last <laughs> yeah, year, they right? must have, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be bad, that's one thing, but you got to get some home wins. You can't have people going home pissed every single night. But uh, right, I, I I saw a thing. I think it was 60 Minutes Sports about the Cubs and the ownership there says all the right things about staying the course and being patient. This this group, you think, can withstand another 90 loss season if they're on pace for that? Uh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely think the Cubs can. Okay. Um, in part because, uh, you know, they, they seem to have so much on the farm, right? I think you right. have to, uh, I think the ownership will at least give them a chance to have these guys come up and see what they can do, right? Talking about guys like, oh, Javier Baez, um, and, you know, all, all sorts of other guys like that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that they'll have, they have a little bit of time, although I do think this is going to be one of the worst teams in the league. Um, but yeah, you, you get Javier Baez up there, you get Jorge Soler up there, uh, you know, that, that, that is really, would only be fair to give this group a chance to see what those guys can do. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it seems like the ownership says that, but, you know, sometimes you just wonder with rich people. Sometimes they change their mind, you know, sometimes they <laughs> get impatient. We've seen it here in Buffalo, their hockey team, which is one of the worst of all, maybe the worst of all time this year. And uh, right. despite the fact that they said going into the season, you know, that uh, oh, we're ready to be the worst. They fired everyone anyway at one point or another, you know, during the course of the season. I guess they weren't – they were prepared to be bad, but maybe not that bad. Not saying the Cubs will be as bad as the Sabres were. So, I mean, it was one of the worst teams of all time. I mean, I think – if they, so they won 21 games. If they would have played 12 games more than everyone else and won them all, they still would have – finish one point behind the second-worst team. Well, maybe, maybe if the Cubs are that bad, then right, things will change. Right, they they yeah, haven't yeah. shown much patience um, in their manager's office, right? They've had, like, four different managers in the past five years. 
Um, but uh, I think as far as the uh, GM suites, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, those guys are going to have a couple more years for sure. All right. Well, uh, Ben Ryder writes for Sports Illustrated and it's on sportsillustrated.com. He's at SI underscore Ben Ryder on Twitter. We just want to do a quick check-in on baseball before we got too uh, into the NBA and NHL playoffs and forgot about it. And then it's July 4th and like we haven't talked about it all summer and feel like mm-hmm. idiots. So thanks for that. And oh, hey, how about – so South Orange, New Jersey, where is that in New Jersey? Is that closer to like New York or is that closer to Philly or like where in New Jersey is South Orange? I'll admit I have no idea. Uh, South Orange is about 30 minutes outside of Manhattan. It's in Essex County. It's, it's essentially right next to Newark. So if you ever fly at a Newark airport, oh, okay. uh, you're probably flying over South Orange on takeoff. So probably not that far from Flanders, New Jersey? I think it probably is far from Flanders. Really? I'm not exactly sure where Flanders is. So. Oh, okay. Because uh, <laughs> one of... Uh... The you know one of the Yale hockey players is from Flanders, New Jersey, and will soon be a graduate. And he played eight games in the NHL after the Yale season ended. Got his first NHL goal. Played for the Flames. So that's a guy that can be your, your favorite hockey player. Now I don't know if you have one already, but a New Jersey uh-huh. Yale guy, you know, big making it big. Kenny Agostino, you gotta get his jersey. All right, yeah, <laughs> I will <laughs> for sure. All right, dude, thanks so much for uh, for coming on today. Appreciate it. All right, man. All right, talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Lee Jenkins and Men Writer for being on the show today. Don't forget next week. Uh, we should have interviews with S.L. Price and Chris Burke. And maybe next week will be Jonah Carey. I haven't talked to Jonah yet. I don't know if we're going to close out his book next week or if we'll wait till the week after. We'll see. But don't forget, his book, Up, Up, and Away, is the book club book of the month. And he will be on the Tuesday night episode of Seth Meyers Show, which I don't know what the name of Seth Meyers Show is, but it's the one after Fallon. You got me. Yeah, whatever that is. Uh, don't forget, you can find our Past podcasts, future podcasts, eventually. We'll be on our website at www.sports-casters.com. We're also on iTunes and Stitchers and any third-party apps. If there's somewhere that you want to hear the podcast and it's not there, let us know. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. All right, one last thing for me today. So Miss Caster had some time off from work last week uh, because it was – Schools were off uh, for Easter, and uh, she took some time. And on Wednesday night, we went out downtown, and we had dinner at Dinosaur Barbecue, which is a New York State thing. Yeah. Uh, It's a barbecue joint that started, like, in Syracuse and then spread out to Rochester and now has opened a location here, and it's fantastic barbecue food. Are you into barbecue? Uh, I'm a middle-of-the-road barbecue fan. You ever been to Suzy Q's? Because I've heard that that is like the place to go in Buffalo still. No, I don't think I've ever been to Suzy Q's. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to wonder what your compare, like if you could compare them. I've been to the one that's next to Mother's, whatever that's called. I, I don't remember. I don't know. I've been to, I maybe I've even been to Suzy Q's. Dinosaur got a good review though. I like Dinosaur. It was good. It was a great dinner there. Barbecue food's not the cheapest. Right. You know, so it's, you know, it's a $45 dinner without... 
if both people are you know i think i got a i got a platter that gave me the ribs and the other meat thing what's that called brisket okay and then it came with two sides and i got macaroni and cheese which was really in corn cajun corn and it came with a piece of cornbread and that was like 20 bucks or 18.99 something like that yeah it's reasonable so fair. it's good yeah and uh so we eat a big dinner there downtown nice new place downtown and then we were very excited to go to another new place downtown the helium comedy club to see Jim Florentine, who's been oh, you did go, yeah, we did, and we were really excited. We're we're excited, I think Don and I, and most of Buffalo, that this place exists because it's been a place we haven't had in a while. Sure, we haven't had the comedy club for the comedians to come. If comedians come here, they come to the casino or to like a bigger theater, like Shays, something like that. And even when we used to have two or three comedy clubs or whatever, however many there were. I don't remember. That. Maybe I was just not as connected to comedy, but there are big, big names coming to this club. Yeah, this club is doing a great job. Like they're getting, they're getting the comedians to come here that are known for playing comedy clubs, right? As opposed to just the comedians who are playing, like touring and touring. Like so, Jerry Seinfeld comes here all the time, but he plays at Shades. Right. Jerry Seinfeld doesn't really do comedy clubs, right? But a guy like Jim Florentine doesn't do Shays. So he even said, I haven't been here in a long time. Um, and uh, we'll see, you know, uh, how this does. But we're real, we were real excited to go there. So we get there. We buy our tickets. Tickets are reasonably priced. I yeah. think 15 bucks uh, for each of us. And we, were, uh, we got there about a little after 7 and the show was at 8. And there's a first room you walk in, and it's a bar, and there's tables to eat right. and TVs. And then there's a a room off to the right where the shows are. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't opened that yet. So Tammy and I went to the bar. I ordered a non-alcoholic drink, and she got a real expensive alcoholic drink. The bill was sixteen fifty for the drinks. <laughs> okay. Okay. So they bring the drinks over. I pay. She goes to the bathroom. She comes back. They call us to go in the other room. Okay. We go in the other room and very clearly marked on the wall is a sign saying that you need to, during the show, buy two, drinks, buy two like items for each person. Okay. We sit down and say, we just bought these at the bar. Do we need to buy two more or one more? And she says, two more. So the drinks we just bought a second before we yeah. walked in don't count i I wonder how much they would enforce that okay they didn't so i'll get to that okay all right so i am green to comedy clubs i don't know them that well i've been to many comedy shows and i did tweet on twitter that i was turned off by the somewhat russia nature of the forcing me (laughs) well a lot of times they'll give those tickets away free and that's how they they make their money right and sal capaccio who's a local radio guy who apparently worked in promoting comedy okay um in florida tweeted me back and said it's pretty common yeah, yeah. in comedy he's like they, people will come to shows and not leave and sit at tables and they can't turn them over okay right and i was just that's a fair point but we bought tickets, tickets to right. the show nobody's leaving you're not trying to, it's not like open mic night where people might come in and out so i was wrong in the sense that this is not uncommon. And I didn't know that going in. 
So I got a no- I got an iced tea right away, and Tammy got a drink right away, and they brought her a giant beer. <laughs> the show was like an hour and 45 minutes. So we walked in with a, her just having a drink. Right. And then she ordered another giant beer. And then the show ended. I had bought two iced teas, but she had just finished the second drink by the time the show, the show was only like an hour and a half. Right. So, the, but they didn't say anything. They brought us the check. And it was like 19 bucks or 12 bucks. And I gave a $7 tip. Okay. So we were courteous about tipping. Right, right. And we weren't quite as cheap as we maybe came off <laughs> on Twitter, or I may have. Right. And they, the comedy club tweeted me the next day saying, sorry for the inconvenience. Comic get money for ticket sales. We get money for, for food, food and drinks. Right, right. Okay, well, guess what? I don't want this place to close. And even though their food and drinks are outrageously priced – Next time we go to a show, we'll skip Dinosaur Barbecue and eat there. Yeah, see. Because menu um, items do count. Right. Some places make yep. you just buy drinks and don't count menu items. They do, and that's a good policy. If this is the policy across the board, right. I'm not going to criticize them for having yeah, something as soon as everyone you, else as does. As soon as you said you went to Dinosaur Barbecue and then sounded like you were going to be critical, I, I realized where that was going. Because, yeah, I went there uh, not too long ago and – I just plan on having dinner there. I mean, I right. ate, ate a late dinner. So and... what I'm getting at isn't necessarily a criticism of them as much as a heads up <laughs> that go there hungry because you might as well – because the start of this was I'm so excited we have this place. Right. We might as well do our part to keep it. It was a great show. It was well attended probably because Florentine was on this show and everyone heard it. So no, we that's right. Yeah. Ticket. It was well attended. It was a great show. So I'm happy about the place. Did, did he stick around afterward? He did. Did you say hi? I didn't because it was a big line and I would have waited. But the point of the line was to buy something. And I didn't – I would have. But I didn't have any cash. Oh. Like buy a CD and then a lot of graphics right. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He was selling T-shirts that he admitted were a bust. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he told a funny story about how he got two th- – three. he was on uh, a metal tour. Yeah. It was like a bunch of bands and he got tickets to uh, shirts to sell, but he thought he would be able to sell them for 20 bucks, but there was a rule that you couldn't sell them less than the headlining band. Okay. So he had to sell them for 35 and he said he sold like five. So those were so the he had boxes of them. So he had them for 15 <laughs> and he had CDs and I would have bought something. I was actually mad at myself that I didn't yeah. bring cash, but I didn't. That's also kind of common that the guy will stay afterward and right. sell something. And I, right. Like I wasn't saying he was exploiting us. No, no, no. Right. Totally fair. But since I didn't have any cash to buy anything on me, I didn't wait in the line to be a jerk off and say, just I just waited to shake your hand yeah, and I'm yeah. not going to buy anything from you. So next time I go to one, I'll make sure I have a 20 in my pocket. Because I would have gladly bought one of his CDs. I'm sure they're great. And, you know, I don't have any, so I would have gra- gla- gladly done it. But. Yeah, they're f- they're fun. I don't I don't know why. It's kind of the same idea behind a movie. I guess to run, like, the Avengers costs the theater so much money that they basically break even on the ticket sales, and then they sell you concessions. I almost never buy concessions, so I don't feel the same way about movies as I do about comedy clubs, but I- I'm okay spending money there. Yeah. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, I This just happened maybe 15 minutes ago, so by the time you read it this it won't be that old, but a list of 30 draft uh, draftees, I guess you would say, or future draftees, prospects is a better word, uh, accepted invite to the 2014 NFL draft in New York City. And, okay, they were invited. They accepted. That's kind of cool. 
the NFL is not forcing anybody to go there. But I'm reading the NFL press release about it or their NFL.com article, and it says, The NFL has typically limited invites to those considered near locks to go in the first round, but it has opened up those guidelines this year. So, yeah, so they're not that concerned about who's going to go in the first round. They've always kind of said they didn't want another uh, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers right. situation and stuff like that. But I think I think 30 guys being there day one is, is pretty clear evidence that they do want that kind of uh, soap opera to unfold. I joked earlier about how much the NFL loves themselves, and this is just another example. It It's cool. I like the draft, even though I'm not a big college guy. It's fun to see where these guys go. It's fun to hear the the New York fans boo practically every selection. Uh, it's just it's a silly, over-the-top event, and now there's going to be the added uh, kind of who's going to be the last one waiting in the in the green room to be picked. So I look forward to it. Any reason to look forward to the draft beyond the hundreds of already awesome ideas to watch the draft are okay in my book. I mean, like I said, the NFL is so full of itself, but I'm on board with this one. And the song I'm going to go out to is for my daughter uh, because she's a goofball.